on this side of Easter, knowing all that happened, it's hard for me to get to a place where I could really get there mentally and emotionally and, and have empathy with those women who were walking to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning. They didn't know yet what we know now, and they're still in the chokehold of grief and despair. Jesus, who is their everything, has died, and with that, their hopes had died. And then what was it like as they turned the corner and they saw the tomb and the stone is rolled away and they see an angel standing there and he says to them, he is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then, then they remembered his words. It wasn't until Jesus actually, literally, physically rose from the dead that they heard his words and really remembered and understood his words for the first time. And today is a day that we don't just look back and remember what Jesus said, we remember what Jesus did. This incredible, monumental, pivotal moment from history. And as we're thinking about this, I'm going to ask you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine when the service is over and you finally make your way home, you're walking up to the front door of your residence and you see a package there. You open it up. It looks very official. There's official letterhead. It comes from a reputable law firm. And you begin to read the message of this letter. And it's this, that you had a long lost relative, maybe someone you didn't even know, this distant relative, they've died and they've left you an inheritance, a considerable sum of money. What's the first thing you do? You go shopping? Do you, uh, anybody feel a little twinge of doubt? Like what, what's the truth? Is this real? If you're feeling that, that's probably what I would feel. Do you just crumple up the letter, throw it away and ignore it? Or do you pick up the phone and you call the number that's on the letter and you dig in because the promise of, of what's contained in this letter is too good to simply ignore. You've got to find out what is really to this. It's the same with the resurrection. It is absolutely understandable that when we hear it for the first time or when we hear it again, that maybe our response is an immediate surge of skepticism. That might even be the right response. And yet the promise of the resurrection it's too good. The what if of it is, is too interesting. It's too amazing to simply pass over and ignore. That Jesus who did not raise from the dead doesn't change anything. Now, Jesus who did rise from the dead changes everything. I love how biblical writers are incredibly honest. They're not just honest, they're blunt. And at times they're incredibly vulnerable. The Apostle Paul wrote this, and if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless. I'm wasting your time right now. And if Christ has not been raised, not only is preaching useless, so is your faith. If Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. It's either game on or game over. And when we look at the evidence, when we dare to really peek at it, to look into the case for the resurrection, this is what I'm convinced of, that we will find that it is far too compelling to simply ignore. But it may not be, I don't know, it may not be that the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that might not be the most unbelievable aspect of the gospel. I don't know, you tell me, what do you think? Which is more unbelievable, Jesus came back to life or that I can have new life? Jesus came back to life or that you could actually be made into a new person with a new identity? a new life. 
Today we're going to talk about both of these things. First, I want to start here where Jesus came back to life. Believe it or not, uh, scholars of all stripes, whether they're religious or irreligious, they agree on a certain set of undisputed facts regarding the crucifixion and the empty tomb of Jesus. And I don't have time to unpack all of those uh, agreed upon undisputed facts, but I do want to share a few of them with you this morning. Uh, The first of the undisputed facts is the crucifixion of Jesus caused the disciples to despair and lose hope. You know what you're never going to read in the New Testament? There is not this passage. That on that first Easter Sunday morning, they were all there waiting for the sun to come up, and they were counting down 10, 9. It wasn't happening. Hope was dead. Days after the the tomb, excuse me, days later, just right after the crucifixion, the tomb was empty. The disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. The resurrection was the central message of the first Christians. I want us to think about this. That did not change or evolve or grow over time from the jump. The message was this, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. They preached the message of Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. Think about that. That's where Jesus was killed. That would be the easiest place to disprove their message or to dismiss their message, but yet it grew like wildfire there. And there's more to this list, but before we go further in this list, I want us just to pause and recognize how these men and women who were convinced that they had experiences with the risen Jesus, they were transformed from the inside out. They were radically changed. And they could face any hardship, any death, any persecution, any torture or adversity because they were convinced that that Jesus was alive. And all they had to do to tap out of all the hardship and adversity they were facing is to stop saying that Jesus rose from the dead. But they didn't. How do we explain that? There's another undisputed fact. The church exploded and grew all over the known world. Historians and scholars who reject the resurrection, they are still trying to come up with a reasonable explanation for this, and they keep striking out. There is no good explanation for why this happened. No one can explain it. Orthodox Jews who believed in Christ made Sunday their primary day of worship. And that may not be a big deal to us. Some of us will go to a church service on Sunday morning or Sunday night, but it was monumental. It was a seismic shift for them that they would change the day of week in which they worship God. And I was trying to think, how can I, what's like an analogy that I could think of so we could get how monumental of a shift that was? And I just thought about this. If in the next presidential election, if Donald Trump campaigned for Joe Biden, it's that kind of level of seismic shift. You know something something major had happened. Jesus' brother James was converted to the faith when he saw the resurrected Jesus and he was later martyred for his faith in Jesus. He was not a follower of Jesus at all during Jesus' ministry, but after the crucifixion, something happened. It changed his mind. How many of you guys have a brother? Who has a brother? I got a brother. He's okay. I heard a pastor ask this one time, why would it take for you to be convinced your brother's God? Why would it take for you to be convinced that your brother is God in the flesh and that you would die for that belief? The conversion of James is an incredible evidence for the resurrection. This is one that I'm stunned by. Paul was converted to the faith. He began his life Saul, uh, and he changed his name after becoming a follower of Jesus. But before he followed Jesus, he was an official, state-sponsored 
persecutor of the church. He went from killing Christians and imprisoning Christians to following Jesus and leading Christians. And it cost him everything. It cost him everything. How do we explain that? Now, I know that I'm probably not going to prove the resurrection today. I'm not even sure that that's my intent. But what I am trying to do is persuade any of us who doubt or we are unsure or we have a measure of skepticism, I'm so glad that you're here. What I'm asking you to do is to look again at the case, to not dismiss it, to not treat it as something casual, to not ignore it, but to take seriously the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And I know that is the exact kind of thing you would expect a pastor to say, especially on Easter Sunday. I want to introduce you to Bart Ehrman. He is a world-renowned New Testament scholar. He is also a committed agnostic. He actually engages in debates against Christians. Now, this is what Bart Ehrman, a world-renowned New Testament scholar, has to say. He says that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to the experiences, I do not know. They believed this, they lived it, and they died for it. In response to that way of thinking, a man by the name of Shusako Endo, he was a Japanese author and writer, a very keen thinker. He responded to that kind of thinking. He said this, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force and electrifying intensity. For if you try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith every bit as great as if we believed in the resurrection to start with. The message of the resurrection, the evidence, the, the case for it, it not only made its way into first century documents and letters, but it made its way into people's lives. And it changed their lives, and it gave them new life. And the message of Easter is something that they understood, that if Jesus is alive and I trust in him, I have new life. I'm made into a new person. I'm no longer defined by my old set of insecurities and failures and fears and moral mess-ups and sin. I am brand new. It's a change in identity. And since we're talking about identity, it's important for us to define it, and it's this. It's the story that you tell yourself about yourself. And these first followers of Jesus, these men and women, they were radically, fundamentally transformed from the inside out. And they stopped telling themselves an old story and they started telling them a new story and it was firmly based on being convinced that Jesus is alive. And that led to the conviction if Jesus is alive and I'm in him, I have a new story to tell. And they no longer said things to themselves like, I'm just a prostitute, or I'm just a fisherman, or I'm a disgraced tax collector, or I'm exclusively Jewish political leader. They had a new story, a newfound set of courage and confidence that defied the old story, that rewrote the old story. And they began to say among themselves to each other and about each other, we are ambassadors of the king. We are carriers of a life-changing, eternity-altering message. And because of that, they would face all kinds of hardship and danger and pain and suffering and sometimes even death because they were convinced because of the resurrection that there was more to this life and there was another life coming and it dramatically recalibrated how they weighted this life and how they evaluated 
this life. And as we think about their change of story, I want to ask you about your story. What is the story that you tell yourself about yourself? And the invitation this Easter is to make the resurrection of Jesus the starting point for your new story, to make it the hinge point for a brand new story and a brand new identity that you can have in him. But before we talk a little bit more about what it means to be defined by Jesus and to have new life and identity in him, let's imagine that we don't. Let's just imagine that Easter never happened. Let's ignore it. In modern Western society, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is pretty much identical. Uh, The details are different, but the structure of the story is the same. I am what I do. I am what I achieve. I am my desires. I am what I feel. And we have these kind of questions that we ask ourselves, how do I know if I'm a good person? Well, just do what you think is right. How do I know if I'm enough? Look at what you accomplish with your life. Hopefully that's enough. How do I know my true self? Follow your heart. Follow your desires. And if you listen closely, this is the story that our culture is telling itself. I am what I do. I am what I achieve. I am my desires. And if that is the story that you and I tell ourselves about ourselves, I don't know how we avoid lives of despair and delusion. This is what I'm talking about. Despair is I'm fixated on what I lose in life. Isn't it true that we all have our dark moments? Isn't it true that no matter what kind of relationships we experience or whatever achievements that we're able to acquire for ourselves, if we live long enough, we will all lose the person or the achievements that we thought made life meaningful. If I am what I do, if I am what I accomplish, how do I live in light of that? Is it any wonder that these past two years have been so damaging, so despairing, that depression and anxiety and all kinds of other maladies related to that have skyrocketed? But there's a flip side to this. The flip side to despair is delusion. I'm fixated on what I win. This sounds more positive, right? And who doesn't like being positive? I like being positive, but I got to ask us this. Are we really being honest with ourselves? If we just focus on the things that we get right in life, how can we have a true and complete and a whole sense of ourselves if we're just looking at a narrow piece of the pie? Probably most people gravitate towards one over the other. Probably a lot of us find ourselves at times bouncing back and forth between the two. Recognizing this kind of reality, the Romans had a way to sober themselves with reality. And I'll let you decide whether or not you think they were despairing or delusional. I'm going to teach you a little Latin today. There's a Latin phrase that they had, memento mori. It means remember death. Memento mori. It means remember death. On those rare and special occasions when a conquering general of Rome was honored in the city, he would would be paraded on a chariot through the streets and people would line the streets and celebrate and cheer and clamor and shout. It was a great thing. And behind this general and his chariot, there would be all the spoils of war. And just imagine people carrying all kinds of treasures from conquered lands. Uh, Conquered and defeated generals would march behind the chariot in chains. If you were a Roman citizen, this was a day of national pride. 
If you were a soldier, it was a day of glory. But if you were that conquering general, it was the high water mark of achievement in your life. It was the greatest moment. It was the greatest day of your life. And as you go through the city streets in your chariot and people are uh, clamoring to celebrate you, you're the object of their envy, you're the object of their jealousy, you are the object of universal approval and honor in the chariot with you. There was a slave, and the slave had one job, one thing the slave was supposed to do over and over and over, and that was to whisper, memento mori, remember death. Whether you are a conquering general or the lowest slave, you'll end up at the same place. And it doesn't matter how great today is or how great you are, Remember that you will die, that there is an enemy that cannot be escaped, that cannot be defeated. And this is the implication of memento mori. No matter what you win in life, you lose. And I think it's ironic that Rome is one of the great civilizations in human history. They made all kinds of stunning, amazing achievements that we continue to appreciate today. And yet, when it comes to this urgent, pressing question of life, who are you? What is the story you tell yourself about yourself? This is the best they could do. Just embrace your defeat. And this is more than a sad lesson from history. This continues to be an urgent and pressing reality and question. And if you think that our thinking has progressed since the time of Rome, it really hasn't. We're still wrestling with that same question. We're still trying to figure out how to live our lives in light of death. You know, Steve Jobs, one of the co-founders of Apple, he is remembered for saying this. He said, remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. The Romans said, when you fulfill your heart's desires, remember you're going to die. Steve Jobs says, when you remember you're going to die, you fulfill your heart's desires. But nothing is solved. What happens for the person who follows their heart and is able to fulfill their heart's desire is the exact same thing that happens to the person who ignores their heart or was not able to achieve their heart's desire. If you're on a sinking ship, what difference does it make? If you're on a sinking ship, what difference does it make if you go down in a panic or you go down throwing a party? Either way, you drown in the crushing depths of the sea. So the question is, where is their hope? Where is their good news? Is there any meaning? Instead of embracing your defeat, the bold proclamation of the gospel, the bold proclamation of Easter is this, embrace Jesus' victory. And when we do, it does more than simply make a good life possible. Embracing the victory of Jesus is the only thing that makes possible life that is truly life. Earlier, I referenced the Apostle Paul, and he was a guy who experienced firsthand what it was like to be radically transformed from the inside out by finding new life and new identity in Jesus. And he wrote about it. And what he said about it remains true for you and me. In Colossians 3, he said, since then you have been raised with Christ. Because Jesus has been raised, you've been raised. It's not some out there in the future thing. It's something you can experience right now by trusting in Jesus. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, 
not on earthly things. Don't be like the Romans. And don't be like people who just blindly follow along with our cultural propaganda today. And what I mean is this. Don't follow your heart to try and find a true sense of self and to find life. Instead, find what is truly life and set your heart on that. Jesus' resurrection is a game changer for identity. The resurrection is a game changer for our lives. It is a game changer for hope. Jesus not only rose from the dead, which he did, but he also offers new life and new identity for those who trust in him. And this new life is defined by and secured by him. It's based 100% on what he did and accomplished for us, not what we do. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He took on the entire weight of sin and guilt and God's appropriate just wrath for sin. And then he validated all the things he promised for those who would follow him. He proved it with his resurrection. And so for those who humbly turn to Jesus and trust in him, we're no longer defined by the old things and things we, love, we would love to keep hidden, but we're given new life and we're defined by his goodness and his grace and his love. And the thing that keeps that sentence from being absurd is the resurrection. Paul would continue to write, he said, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To turn and trust in Jesus is to die to our old self. It's to die to the old story and to turn and trust him in faith to give him our allegiance and allow him to begin to do something brand new inside of us. So my question is, do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you living in the hope of that? I want to share with you what might be one of the more uh, tragic news stories I've ever read. A homeless man who was a long-lost relative of a New York Railroad heiress, was a potential heir to a $300 million fortune and yet was recently found dead in Wyoming. Timothy Gray was found dead under a Union Pacific Railroad overpass in Evanston. The coroner said it appears the homeless heir who could have inherited $19 million of the Clark's $300 million fortune had died of hypothermia. A man who could have had it all missed out on it all because he never claimed it. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the message of Easter. There is an inheritance waiting for you and for me. There is richness and there is life found in Jesus for those who will embrace it, for those who will accept it. And for anyone who would say, it's so hard to believe that someone actually rose from the dead. Let me ask you, have you looked at the evidence? Have you looked at the undisputed facts? You owe it to you to do so. You owe it to you to know what is true and what's offered to you. For those of us in the room who would say, Rick, I, I can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I just have a hard time believing that I could be made new, that I could have new life. If you knew the true story about me, you may not say it so confidently. What I want to say to you is, would you look at Jesus would you really listen to him? Would you see how generous and eager he is to extend his life and his victory to you? All you have to do is to receive it and to embrace it. 
And then there are those of us in the room where we would say we have embraced it and we are never going back and we will never be the same. We know it. And for us, we should simply stand in awe this Easter at the good news of the resurrection. Earlier, I introduced an old Latin phrase to you. I want to introduce to you a new Latin phrase. I made it up. Momento vitam eternum. Momento vitam eternum. It means remember eternal life. If you trust in Jesus, if you are in Jesus, if you know Jesus, I want you to remember that. Remember you have eternal life. And this is part of the good news. This is the implication of memento vitam eternum. No matter what you lose, you win. If you trust in Jesus, if you are in Jesus, no matter what you may lose in life, you win. And it is not a slave whispering to us in our triumphs. Easter is an empty grave shouting to us in our insecurities, shouting to us in our successes. It's an empty grave shouting to us in our conflicts at all the high and all the low points of life saying, you have new life. You have eternal life. If you are in Christ, no matter what you may lose, you win. And that is Easter. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that death is not the end and a true and meaningful life and identity is not something we have to merely pretend that it is anchored and found and secure and true in Christ. And I pray that it would wash over our minds, wash over our hearts so that we would be convinced. God, we pray also that you would be honored by the way that we celebrate this. And we pray that you would use us to help as many people as possible find the joy of this new life and the victory that is extended generously through what Jesus did. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.